I don't really care where you've worked. I don't care where you've been to university. What I actually care is, are you smart? If the shit hits the fan, are you going to get me out of it? Let's build a place that people enjoy spending time and then they don't see it like work. So that's what we set out to do. I think actually raising money is a bullshit milestone that people celebrate. We didn't need the money, but I wanted a buffer. Most importantly, I got angels that were experts in things that are part of the vision for BuildPath. Right, left work on a Friday and gave birth on the Saturday. Already my guest this week is more of a rock star than most guests before. 2014 Tech City's Entrepreneur of the Year, Alex DePledge, is the straight-talking British businesswoman best known for being the driving force behind Hassle.com. Alex launched her career in the US after completing her master's degree at the Uni of Chicago, working on the campaign team of a major US politician. We will not name that awesome politician. Go Trump! In 2006, Alex returned to the UK to become a consultant for Accenture, advising FTSE 100 clients on their customer and channel execution before leaving in 2012 to enter the world of entrepreneurship. In 2011, Alex conceived the idea when she discovered how hard it was to find a piano teacher online. So she realised that babysitters, cleaners, etc. found it hard to market themselves as they weren't always as tech-savvy as other entrepreneurs and they needed to rely on word of mouth. So, alongside co-founders Tom Nimmo... And Jules Coleman, Tedal, connected local service providers to customers, which rebranded to Hassle.com, two years later connecting vetted cleaners to local customers. It recently sold for 32 million euros to German company Helpling. And Alex has now launched BuildPath, which assesses whether house extensions are viable and how much they would cost. So, very quick, quick fire round, if you don't mind. The UK or the US? Neither. Where instead? This right, right now, like, I mean, there is no quick fire answer to this. The UK is committing self-sabotage and the US has got a maniac in charge of it. So how can you choose either? So, yeah, but a maniac that you campaigned for in Chicago. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Like, I'm a massive Trump fan. Yeah. Um, well, I when you won't want, name someone, we're just going to have to assume it was him. That's what I want. His it's hair. lovely hair. Do you know, like, I, I really like respect what Macron's done. And I typically don't like France, which is awesome. Sorry to all the French people out there. God, it's a depressing world out there. Portugal's cool. Pot, is it? Yeah, it's doing well. It's on the up. I was reading a really interesting article about drugs. It's, that's on the way down. One of the few countries, maybe Portugal. Yeah, because they legalised it. Yeah, and they put lots of intervention in place, which we should do too. Again, we digress. Quick fire, go. Okay, Chicago <laughs> or London? Chicago. Oof, ouch. Um, although I've never been, so maybe you're right. I think it's only because I was younger. I had a lot more fun there, like as in I wasn't married with a mortgage and a business. I was yeah. like living it up. Marissa Mayer or Sheryl Sandberg? Oh, God. Um, Let me guess, hate both of them. They've both got their good qualities. Okay, nice, political. You're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. You're not allowed to say Marissa Meyer or Cheryl Sandberg as your first two. I would bring a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough, because that's my favourite wine, and a horse for companionship, and uh, the encyclopaedia. Okay, why the encyclopaedia? Just because it's the longest book you could think of. Yeah, and I love books. Okay, all right, not much of a narrative going on there, but I guess you could write your own books if you had the encyclopaedia with you. And I could add to it of all the things I discover about living on a desert island on my own. Very true. Uh, Websites or apps? Websites. I know, old school. Yeah, old school. Um, Extending houses or cleaning them? Extending them. Most inspirational person in the world to you? This is the worst question in the world Good. because everybody asks it and I'll be really honest, Like I take inspiration from individuals and cobble them together into the person that I aspire to be. I don't think anyone's got it 100%. So very on the fence with your answer. It's because I, I just, I, I don't look around and be like, oh, that's a person I really, I mean, if I had to have dinner, I mean, I love Nick Clegg. I really so like... you Liberal Democrat. Really, can you be a Liberal Democrat with seven MPs? If you had a snap election tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to vote with know, good I conscience. I voted for them in the last election, which no, is embarrassing. I, I, I voted for them a lot as well. But I mean, right now, like, I just think all politicians are massively embarrassing. But then I, I have like... Girl- in fairness, no one was expecting you to name a politician as your most inspirational person in the world. I mean, exactly. <laughs> I'd love to name a woman, but I quite like Jennifer um, Jennifer Lawrence, the actress. Yeah, I think she's, she's cool. kick-ass. Yeah, she's very cool. All right, last person on earth you'd go to dinner with. Oh, last person that's alive. I mean... Who cares, right? Yeah. Um, You're not going to go because it's the Kim last Jong-il. person. Kim Jong-il or Un? Who's the one that's still alive? Un. Un, sorry. Okay, don't like his hair. I just don't like him. I mean, he's quite a repulsive looking character and then Actually he does makes horrendous things. Normal. Doesn't he? Yeah. Um, okay, weirdest request you ever had from a client? 
Oh, well, hassle, the best one we ever had was... Um, emailing is in with a very what started as a very innocuous email going oh these are the features i'd love to see on your website but then the rationale when he got into it was that he had a uh, he was into sexual fetishes and he wanted to be able to put that in somewhere in the request for a cleaner so that he didn't shock them when they came around he wasn't after them to clean his toys or his equipment but he just he scared a lot of people off and i just thought this was genius because it started off so like mundane as a like great user feedback that led into he had this fetish and I could just imagine the like kind of scenarios that he'd run through. Did you ever, I will come into it, but I mean, did, did you ever, you know, go in and actually... Clean? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, yeah. just checking. It's really intimidating, just for all the people that are out there that either want a cleaner or have a cleaner. Being a cleaner going into someone's house is the biggest invasion of someone's privacy and it's a really uncomfortable thing that it takes ages to get used to and we were never able to reconcile that with people's expectations because they expect cleaners to be all-knowing and all-seeing beings and they're not most of the time. They're just terrified that you're going to be unhappy with the job it's good insight and i can actually see the way my fiance reacts when there's a tiny bit of dust left somewhere i'm like chill out whatever it's not perfect well, and it you're also no in difference. there looking at it 24 <laughs> 7 the cleaner's got two hour window yeah, to exactly. get in and make it all perfect so co-founder ceo or entrepreneur which title do you use Co- i guess co-founder sounds the less wankish it does ceo of 17 people sounds like i've got a, like a megalomania complex entrepreneur is just wanky like it just is when I was growing up my dad was a business owner not an entrepreneur I don't know when we adopted this terminology to make ourselves feel good about ourselves I say exactly the same thing about my, my dad like he was a business owner yeah. or ran a business or you're an MD not... and suddenly now we're yeah. CEOs and entrepreneurs we yeah. really love to love ourselves in this uh, tech world George W. Bush famous quote French have no word for entrepreneur so, well, he was a smart note, man, wasn't he? He was a smart man. <laughs> Still, you probably would have campaigned for him. So, let's get cracking. Um, <laughs> I love how you're putting me in the yeah, right I really wing am. camp. I really am. Anyway, so, my Republican friend, from politics in America to linking up cleaners with their new employers, in your words, just tell us how it all evolved. So, you know, on this topic of being a Republican, is it as simple as Trump's hair reminding you of a mop? And so you just went from there, or is there something more deep? That to would this? make a great story. Uh, look, so I'm going to keep it super short because there must be about 70 million interviews of me talking about the founding of Teddle, and people must be bored of it. But basically, what happened? And if you're not, go and look for it. It's it's literally everywhere. Like on YouTube, you Google my name and it's there. But basically what happened is Jules and I both got really bored in our jobs. Hers because she did the triumvir of the access of evil. She did weapons, pharma and oil and was just like, as a consultant, there is more to life than sit making bad people rich. Um, mine was slightly different. I got married and when I looked up at the women ahead of me, they either got really great careers and didn't see their family or they saw their family and didn't, they stagnated and I was like mm, it didn't really work for me and you start doing a bit of soul searching um going what the hell am I going to do and so Jules and I had always said we'd lived together for years and we'd always said you know if, if we start a business we'd do it together she came up with this piano idea I was like that's shit because it's small she wanted to do a school of music and then I started looking for a gardener for my wisteria this is what keeps her in the triumvirate right in the fourth <laughs> pillar School music. Of music, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I started looking for a gardener to do my wisteria, and I wanted Bob down the road. And um, really, all you could find was like Pimlico plumbers esque type people. And I was like, "Where are these mythical beasts?" Because you know that they work in your neighbourhood. And that's when we're having this conversation. And Jules was like, "Well, my dad's a driving instructor, and he really struggles to get clients." So we just hit upon this idea that like local service providers, they're not professional, as in they manage everything through paper and diary and stuff like that, but they also get clients through leaflets word of mouth you know Sainsbury's notice boards and we were like we can make that better and at that point we had no idea that this was a technical endeavor because neither of us could code and were technical Um, but as we got further into it we realized we needed to be technical Jules being Jules will never let anything get in the way and she went off and bought this book and she was like, haha, I'm going to teach myself to code. And I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But she did. Um, she built an MVP and we kind of tossed that around for a while. How long did that take, by the way? How long did she take to learn to code to build an MVP? So she, I think she practiced in this book for about four weeks in like the month of October 2011. And then in November did the big reveal to me. And, and basically she built Twitter and then hacked it into like a booking engine to take bookings. And I remember meeting um, Stephen Rappaport and Dan, who founded Crash Padders, uh, before Dan went off to do product management at Airbnb and Stephen did Pact. And we met him in a pub in um, Covent Garden. And like Dan was like really impressed with what, what she'd done. And I was like, oh, you know, because I knew nothing. I was like, oh, she's quite good then. Um, and we just, we didn't really know where to go from there. So we had this like 
could and this MVP, but no real idea of like how we were going to get this in the hands of customers. And then we went to see Eric Rees on his first, you know, the first book that he did. We well, went to see him do a talk. Oh, yeah, at the Mermaid Centre that Mark Littlewood organised. And um, I don't remember anything about that talk other than feeling completely ill at ease because I was in my Accenture work uniform and backpack and everyone else was in hoodies and they all knew each other and they all talked this different language and I was like oh what's this place but the one thing I remember is that it was sponsored by Springboard and when I started looking on my you know iPhone 3 at what Springboard was after about 10 minutes of loading it told me it was a an accelerator and I was like what the hell's an accelerator I'd never heard of Y Combinator and Jules and I were like it's like this whole world we had to and basically it described itself as a university for startups and it gave you better seed money and we were like haha that's what we need and somehow we got in after beating 400 other teams into like the basically the first springboard program which was like the second accelerator after um, seed camp and um, it was the first company to go into google campus when google campus just opened and the internet was really bad i remember that i was like how is google in a building with really bad internet but anyway we managed to get on there i think john bradford was surprised who ran springboard because he thought we were shit basically but we got on there and that was the basic went on to Techstars, correct Exactly, and that was um, that was basically the long and short of it. We built an MVP, got into an accelerator, and had it not been for that accelerator, I'm not sure we would have got any further. Okay, so you've mentioned before that you know talking about the story of uh, of hassle has been done to death. So yeah. let's not give our listeners something that they can type into Google and get there. Take us behind the scenes. What was raising money like in a period when there wasn't a startup ecosystem? What's that like? So, so hard. So hard for two reasons. The first is that we had a really bad product. So I was going to say, and the other being that you're women? Uh, no, no. Okay. I'm, the other one was... People say that, obviously. George Osborne decided to introduce SCIS right at the time I closed around and it wasn't SCIS available. Like, so when, once you had bitterness from some of your investors? Uh, well, no, they pulled out. The round collapsed and I had to go out and do it again. So I think the first thing that happened is we weren't good enough. But that was a learning in of itself. And so this is what always makes me laugh, like when I go and speak at these kind of events and like everyone really just wants to talk about funding. That's all founders really want to talk about. And I get it, right? Because money means you can leave your job and get cracking or money means you can do marketing. What they also don't realise is that if someone's not giving you money, it's because your business is crap, basically. But a lot of them won't reflect on that and go, well, actually, what do I need to make it investable? And that's what it forced us to do after nine months when this round collapsed and I was like pushing water uphill. It forced us to go, well, hang on a minute. If people are not queuing up at our door to give us money, what's wrong in this business? And and it was largely unfocused. And that led to the pivot to cleaning because we looked at the data and it was like one in four people were coming to us looking for a cleaner and we didn't have any. It wasn't at the time you were just so broad. That... We were doing 23 different things. And you can't be 23 different things and advertise coherently. The only marketplace I know that's been able to do that successfully is Thumbtack in the States. They started off all singing, all dancing and raised enough money that they could be. Whereas for us, we didn't have that luxury. And so actually narrowing down to one executable focus and then expanding out was the right execution path. So that was the big pivot for us. So that was really successful. But I think the second thing that happened is, um, and this is goes to speak to the broad, switch between governments and, and you know we can expect this ourselves like when governments and there's a big overhaul regulations change and that can have a huge impact on your ability to raise money or grow a business or do whatever and you know everyone heralds now SCIS as kind of this like sort of amazing tax scheme that opened up loads of investment but for me it was a blooming nightmare because I get this round together EIS available all the rest of it and then suddenly because I was raising 300 grand and it was 150 eligible and no one knew how to combine SCIS and EIS, no one was clear on the rules. Everyone was like, well, if I don't get SCIS, I'm out. Mm. Now everybody knows how to do it, but at the time, it was like, it was totally uncharted territory. So thanks, George, because you completely messed my round up. But in the long run, it was the right thing because it meant we pivoted and we actually raised more at a better valuation. It's interesting you say pivoted because uh, to me, it sounds like a focus rather than a pivot. And it's kind of the same product, just using but, but data. Yeah, but don't you think most people, when they talk about a pivot, it's usually because some some part of the existing business that they're doing shows promise and they realise that actually that's where you should go. Yeah, but everyone calls that a pivot. But yeah, you mean, it's a just it's a refocus. Same idea, execute it differently. Okay, so that was funding in the first year. 
last question about the hassle days that we might not be able to find anywhere else. You mentioned Google Campus, but what was hiring people into a startup at that time, especially one in kind of an unglamorous area like cleaning? What was that like? How did you think about your hiring challenges, what the team looked like? Did you have like a strategy in place for the culture and for all these different things that we talk about now? What was it like back then when there just wasn't this sort of experience that we've now had? Um, So I, in many respects, I thank the stars for hassle, not because it was a success, but because actually, because we were very unglamorous, we were first time founders with no reputation. No one really wanted to work for us. It forced us to do something that most startups don't do, which is basically just get people that have got a lot of grit and savvy and kind of hustle and just be like, see if you can figure this out. And actually, it's how I hire now for Build Path. I don't really care where you've worked. I don't care where you've been to university. I don't care what your experience is. What I actually care is, are you smart? If the shit hits the fan, are you going to get me out of it? Do, you know, anyone who needs a job description, don't apply to Build Path because we don't really have them and actually hiring people for are they just going to get on and learn what they need it creates really loyal people who stay with you a long long time and the average life cycle in tech now of an employee staying with you is about 18 months so it's super short Mm. And incentivizing them with a career path is non-existent, right? Because most of the time, you don't know what's going to be going one month to the next. But what it also does is you get staff far more affordable and you find these hidden gems, like hidden in places. So that's what it forced us to do. And then in terms of culture, I think we were, Jules and I were always really clear on culture. Like we did not get into running our own business because we wanted a lifestyle business or because we wanted to build a billion dollar business or because we were chasing money. We did it because we wanted to create a work workplace that we felt didn't exist out there and it was the you know Accenture winning the best place to work as a woman year on year on year and actually it wasn't the best place to work as a woman it was the best place to go and get a year's paid maternity it did nothing for you when you're returning to work so we wanted to actually go and innovate on what does it mean in a workplace and and I know it might not sound that innovative now but back in 2012-2013 the idea of equal paternity and maternity pay was completely unheard of the idea that we removed all identifying features off a CV and didn't allow people to to unconsciously select based on name or age or whatever that was pretty radical too so we got to run all these like really cool experiments to see if we could build what I would consider is is just a life you go to work but it's part of your life like you this idea of work life work, ba- yeah so, your work yeah. life balance is a myth and the pe- pursuing it is ridiculous so let's let's build a place that people enjoy spending time and then they don't see it like work so that's what we set out to do so actually if if that's what your goal is good things always flow in your culture If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Totally agree. So 
Coming back onto topic a little bit, but don't worry, I'll meander professionally. <laughs> so um, you talk about uh, tough social problems, things like homelessness, etc. What's the toughest thing you've ever had to deal with personally? Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest things I ever went through is I, I burnt out. So I've suffered with mental illness. When you say mental illness, it always sounds like really dramatic, like, you know, you have had major issues. Mm. But I think... Jumping forward to the end now as well. I mean, why don't you throw this interview out of the way and we'll just go, yeah, go, just go just our own way. You know, sols, the last section, which is lessons in failures and, you know, dealing with mental health. But hey, you, you do with it when but it's I, I mean, we can come back to mental health, but sure. from a personal perspective, like dealing with burning out and the kind of mental an emotional roller coaster that that looked like and I'm still dealing with the repercussions and I've done and I talk openly about mental illness because I think we don't talk about it enough because it's like this hidden problem because it's not we don't have a physical manifestation that and people have the stigma and it's you know to be ashamed of it I think we're getting to a really good place with it com- comparatively yeah in the no, last I 18 agree. months is stark difference like as in is is categorically something people are actively working on making us we and my company signed the mental health pledge for um, Sanctus yeah. yeah we did too and I didn't see any reason why I would resist that. And I don't think they saw much resistance, you know, and that's so different to what it would have been like 18 months ago. Yeah, no, completely. But it lives in a, to- in a, in a socio-economic in a bucket, right? And and then when it filters down to the low one, then I'll believe we've made real headroom. But you are right. Look, anything when it changes the discourse or the narrative is like a step in the right direction. And I mean, I, the one thing that I always love is like just how quickly Ireland embraced gay people. Like if you think 10 years ago, like I think hom- I think homosexuals were like, banned like against law and then you fast forward like 10 years and it's like gay marriage i mean that that is rapid social change so it can happen let's cut right to the end you sold for 32 million euros to helpling yeah how did that come about so basically i had a baby in the february and the reason that that's pertinent is jules took over looking after the company and right in the run-up to having a baby i'd been having this like sort of pen pal affair with these two german guys called dan and stefan and they ran a babysitting and a cleaning business because they're cleaning identical to Hassel and the babysitting business, exactly the same idea. Mm. And they uh, were chatting to us about, you know, expansion and things like that. And we'd had such an awful time in France, which is one of the reasons I would never go back to France and I've become very like... So you are a British politician. This is exactly what they'd say. It's just so painful. Anyway, we decided that actually buying in, in Germany might be a better way of entering the market. So we went into, I literally had a baby, Jules went headlong into buying Dan and Stefan's company. But what that did is it flagged us up to the German scene. So two things happened. First of all, we got inbound from a couple of VCs out there that wanted to do our Series B round. And then second of all, we got on the radar of the, the biggest German competitor, which is Helpling, who bought us. So suddenly, six weeks into this, I had to go back to work because we had an acquisition offer and we had a Series B offer. So I was flying out to Munich to, to pitch the business. So anyway, we weren't interested in the acquisition offer and we kept batting it away and they kept coming back with more and more money to the point at which, like, you know, when you're talking about 30 million for a business that, that basically wasn't generating anywhere near that revenue, you've kind of got to take it seriously. So Jules and I did what Jules and I love to do when we don't know what to do with a situation is bury our heads in the sand and go, OK, you take the Series B round, I'll take the acquisition talks, whichever crosses the line first, that's what we'll do. Jules is better at her job. She crossed the line with the acquisition offer, so we sold the company. So now and, you know how professional decisions get made at these uh, junctures. Yeah, and you know what, look, hindsight's a real gift, but you know, at the time we, we had the inkling of the whole Uber contract worker versus employee legislation downwind that was coming across the Atlantic, and we were under scrutiny in Ireland from the tax revenue guys, and so actually we were a bit nervous about that because we didn't have the resources to fight that. And then the second thing is we knew on the grapevine that Homejoy had gone bust and they'd raised 40 million. And that's the sort of thing that sucks the life out of the funding market. So in the back of our heads, we were like, these two things don't look good. We ran the multiples and said, I think we needed to get to 150 million in valuation to get the same amount of money each. And that sounded like a lot of work between 32 million and 150. So we were like, "Mm, maybe we should just take the money. And who'd, who'd funded you at this point? Axel. Okay, so just a Series A. Did a Series A, Axel did 5 million, and Ventec, which is a French VC, did one. And is that fairly hard to get someone like Axel at Series A to already sell at 30-odd million euros, or were they actually happy about it? I know they were pushing it because they'd had a few disasters with... uh, 
marketplaces, I won't name names, but a couple that had gone kind of like not the way that they wanted. And I think they realised their expertise might not have led like sat in consumer marketplace. Um, and they're pretty risk averse when it comes to things that don't look good on them. So I think they were actively encouraged to sale. Fair enough. And you got away with your reputation and exit under your belt, like the whole works. So that's a... You know, I didn't think of that. And I think that's that's the bit that people don't talk about is that uh, maybe when you sell a second or third business, it's not as emotionally involved. But, you know, for me, Hassel was my child. Like I had 100 staff. Um, we'd built it literally from the ground up and letting go. And I didn't, it didn't feel finished. It just didn't feel like a finished journey. And I was really, really reluctant to let it go. And I was really actually too emotional about Well, let's talk about that period then, because you're probably about to meander into some other beautiful topic elsewhere, but we want to focus here. I'm giving you evil eyes right now. Yeah, (laughs) this is a podcast. You're not supposed to tell people the facial expressions. (laughs) Um, But the reality is um, you sold to a German competitor. Did you all move to Germany? Did you stay in England? What was the... No, so we stayed in England and I think it's suffice to say we had a very different way of running a business to them and it became very quickly apparent. I think if they were honest with themselves, they sold us a dream that they didn't believe in. Really, they wanted our tech technology and they wanted our customers and they wanted to enter London. They didn't really want our culture or the other bits that really mattered to us and, and our staff. Um, and when that became apparent, you know, I sort of basically negotiated an, an early exit for us and um, as long as they made us whole. And I think they were glad to get rid of us. From your point of view, do you think do you think they got that? Do you think they got what they wanted, the technology, the customers, yeah, I mean, etc., well, even they... though the shift in culture and management style? Tom stayed on, actually, and did a great job of migrating all of their 12 countries onto our platform, which I think is a real testament to Tom and Jules and the strength of the technology that they'd built. I mean, I think the fact that Jules went into Deliveroo not too long ago to advise them on building an admin system is pretty strong to, to, to demonstrate like how good we were at logistics. If you think we were moving 10,000 cleaners around London on a daily basis, that's pretty impressive to say that the two of them didn't code before they did hassle. So, yeah, so the migration onto the tech stack when I, I think there's about 15 people left in the company in, in London, which makes me sad. They've got rid of the Hassle.com brand, which to me was like ridiculous. Why would you do that? It was a strong brand and moved it to Helpling, which to me sounds like underling or changeling. And I just don't think it really works here. But anyway. It does sound a little bit needy, Helpling. I don't know why. Yeah. And I think they're getting the business on, on sort of more solid foundations. And I don't know how globally it's doing, but like on a, on a UK basis like it's it's not the same size as it was when we were running it so make of that what you will so how long did you stay less than six months okay so you just like actively hated it immediately did you know this like what were like the emotions and the feelings so the the day you signed the papers and it's becoming someone else's some people obviously have huge sense of relief and elation other people have huge pangs of anxiety towards a change when it's their baby but then there's that six-month period too where there's integration and things are changing to the day you left. What are the emotions, if you can track back, like how did those six months kind of feel from start to finish? So the only sense of relief that I felt was that it wasn't all my responsibility anymore. Like actually, like I didn't need to go and report to investors on, you know, if we miss growth targets, it didn't feel like it was a personal kind of like failure. So that was nice because I got to be a normal person for six months in a normal job. But I think all I felt was grief. I just felt this overwhelming sense of loss because their culture was so different to ours. I was the dam between the the reservoir behind me that was pushing down on my team and then kind of absorbing all of the kind of stuff coming up from my team. And it took a huge, huge emotional toll on me. Jules was just bored. Like Jules was just, I remember she'd just be like, I know I'm being paid stupid amounts of money to do this like this, but can, seriously, this is so boring. Because mm. for her, the excitement and the innovation, it had just gone like that. We were not on our own vision path anymore. And, you know, the staff hated it. So I did as much as we could do to like, you know, retain the kind of culture but there's only so much you can do and I think it became very apparent after about two months that me and the two other founders just were never going to get on the thing is it's funny now because I can sit down with the two of them and have a laugh about it and they're genuinely good guys but in business we were not good partners and so you know and so that's when I broke a deal and said I'm a pain in your ass basically and you want rid of me don't you and they were like yes and I was like I'll tell you what I'll go quietly and support you if you give me all of what I'm entitled to on PS Jules wants to come to accelerated your Excel- yeah. yeah okay well no money 
So yeah, the yeah, yeah. the money was basically on the. Um, so you didn't do your own out, basically accelerated your own out. Yeah, accelerated all my own out, basically. That's the dream. Yeah, and then I got massively depressed. Okay, so take us through that. The last day of the office. What was oh, that like? it was awful because. It, Good. Then we, definitely retrace your steps and have a terrible time doing so. Isn't it this was lovely? awful because we couldn't tell anybody, and um, what happened? You couldn't tell anyone in the office. It was so the last day. What had happened is because this negotiation took then another four months to finalise. We got it finalised on Christmas Eve when everyone had gone away for Christmas. Basically, our contract terminated on the 31st of December. So Jules and I had to like not tell anybody and then walk back in the office on like the 4th of January and be like, oh, by the way, guys, we're no longer employees of Hassle.com and this is what's going to happen. So it wasn't like we could announce it on like, you know, November and then transition out so that the team got used to it. It was literally like... And we're not here anymore. Oh, their faces. Oh, my God. I have, it literally, like, we just stabbed them in the heart. And I felt terrible about it. So 5th of January, what'd you do? Well, so over Christmas, that was when I was like, couldn't get out of bed, wasn't interested in my daughter or my husband, Christmas, eating, watching television. Like, literally, I was just staring at a wall. And Dave was like, oh, my God, what is going on? And is that the burnout feeling that you... you or is that was that a separate episode? I think it was, like, one of those things, you know, like, when you stop... And then suddenly the enormity of what has just happened in the last year. You gave birth in February. You bought a company in March. You went full on negotiations with with a newborn on your Series B flying around to Germany and then went through an acquisition offer. Until I mean, at one point I was sitting in our lawyers' offices, which were in Shoreditch, over cargo, you know, the nightclub. And it was like ridiculously hot and humid in there with no air conditioning. At like one in the morning, everyone outside is getting like pissed ass dancing and me and Jules are sitting there like signing paperwork and like working on whatever it was and I would then go home by like two or three in the morning get up for the night feed with my daughter put her back down and then try and grab a couple of hours and this cycle went on for weeks it took like six weeks to close the deal then it was like fight 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 then negotiate another deal to get out of there then leave and then suddenly it was like literally I've been through a hairdryer I was like I didn't know what had happened and then, and then I had to start processing all of that stuff that had happened in the last year and it just was I just got overwhelmed and I had to go and seek help from a therapist to try and like compartmentalize what had happened but then deal with the emotions that went with that and realize that some of those emotions were perfectly normal and fine and and then work out what the hell I was going to do next so when did this all happen what year so we sold on July 1st 2015 and I left Christmas Eve of 2015 so that was the whole sort of January 2016 period Okay, and how long did you go through this? Do you still have therapists? How long did you go through that process? Of- I've had a th- I mean, I've had a therapist on and off that I go and see when I feel like I need additional support. And I also have an executive coach that I use from a business perspective, which is awesome. But I guess like I was properly like a bit depressed until about March. And then I went through that whole breakup. You know, that breakup where girls cut their hair and get super fit. I did that bit. So that felt like really good and got to spend time with my daughter and really bonded with her. And then it was in like, would have been about May time. Uh, Martin from Index got in touch. I was just like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want coffee? And that's how the whole entrepreneur in residence piece came out. He was just like... Why don't you girls come and hang out in Index for six months? We'll give you desks and money and you help us vet deals and maybe you guys will come up with another business. And we thought that was a really good idea for us because we needed to go and see if we could fall back in love with VC or decide whether it definitely wasn't an option for us. In terms Um, of being one? No, in terms of ever taking VC money again. Yeah, yeah. It was great because we got exposure to loads of businesses and loads of different ideas and we met some really cool people and we got to see VC work from the other side of the table, which was super interesting. You know, and that's where we came up with with the idea of Bill Path. I was going through a extension and I was like how is it this difficult in this day and age you know like I engage an architect the architect comes around two months later I get some plans then I get a 3d renders a couple weeks after that and so you know all in all it takes me nearly like three months and two and a half grand to figure out the feasibility of of what I'm doing and get an idea of what it might look like and cost and I was like that's ridiculous and while I was there I was in a meeting with Neil Reimer and we were looking at some specific technology that was being used in Neil Reimer He's the uh, basic founder of Index. Um, We were looking at some really cool technology that was doing loads of like 3D VR recognition stuff for commercial and retail spaces. 
And it just, in that moment, I was like, oh my God, why wouldn't you use this for residential? And that was it. And then we kind of pulled in a couple of architects that we knew and was like, this is our idea. And they were like, oh, we've had this idea for like five years, but we don't know how to build it. And Jules was like, ha ha, I do. And literally the whole thing came together super quick. So we basically offer 10 times cheaper, 10 times faster than architects. We can tell you how much it's going to cost, the value it'll add, what the hell it's going to look like and do all of your plans and get you planning permission for your renovation extension. We even do new builds now. So anywhere that's like anywhere in the world or anywhere in the UK? Ireland as well. So we do the whole of Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, and how long has it been going for? So we had our first birthday on the 9th of November. So we broke even earlier on this year and now we're... Did you take VC funding in the end? No. Amazing. Okay, so you just funded it yourself? You've got angels? So we bootstrapped it and then we raised an undisclosed amount of money from high net worth. Undisclosed till now, obviously. No, still undisclosed. Whatever. Well, but why would I celebrate? She just winked the number at me. Yeah, I just think, I, you know, I, I think actually raising money is a bullshit milestone that people celebrate. Yeah, of course. And I've just, so I can't like say that and then be like, oh, we raised this amount of money. So we did that in the summer. And You then, just told me you were contrarian, so. I am a contrarian. <laughs> So live up to it. Yeah, so we did. So we did that in the summer. And the, re- and the pure reason that I did is we didn't need the money, but I wanted a buffer because who knows what's going to happen with Brexit. It gives us like some security. But also, I'm more most importantly, I got angels that were experts in things that are part of the vision for BuildPath. So whether it's property construction, finance data, whatever, they all bring something to the table. So I was so really lucky. So would you take more money purely based on like the investors being highly specialised in an area? Yeah, if someone came to me and they were, they were highly specialised and I wanted them involved and the only way they were going to get in is to put some, some money in, then yeah, we'd take some more money. But we don't need it. We've barely touched it. It's just there in the bank for us while we kind of like expand and, and do a whole bunch of stuff. So, you know, we're trading nationwide. I think we're on about 600,000 run rate at the minute, which from standing start of zero for this year, I don't think it's bad progress. That's amazing. But then again, people would obviously expect that of you and your uh, in your capacity already. They'd be almost disappointed. Damn. Yeah, sorry. God, you can never catch a break. No, I know. That's kind of, and the next time, you know, there's going to be even higher expectations. Yeah. So maybe just, you know, stick with this one and don't bother next time. Too no, much pressure. No, we're, we're definitely in this. I, this is not, I like, build and flip. What I really want for this is I want to build a national brand. I actually want to build like a properly, it sounds really old fashioned, but like a proper British business that people know the name of and, and be proud of because um, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of selling out. And I mean, we did it. There's a lot of selling out to foreign companies and there's no brand in architecture, not regionally, let alone nationally. And so I just think that it's clear blue water. A bit like law firms, right? As in it's all just like surname and surname and partner. Yeah, exactly. And I love building brands. That's, that is actually a thing that does give me a kick about building businesses. Okay, so build path uh, wait, vision. Wait, yeah, which is probably going through a name change, actually. Yeah, if you're really into branding, it might have to for the... Yeah, well, uh, it was a working title and it just kind of is there. And, and now we're, we're actually working with these amazing guys on, on exactly what the strategy and the vision is. So probably expect a name change in the new year. Okay, well, you know, just listen out for that. Or we can, if it, if it, if, if it's if it happens in time, we'll re-edit yeah, it. Yeah, but none of that, none of this generation can afford a house. <laughs> isn't that isn't that the big kind of crisis? That is in the minute? indeed the problem. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big hq we take care of the whole process from start to finish and our service is completely free check us out on contour.space moving on the next section is usually about the person yet um i feel like we don't need to bother but just in case so i get a rough idea what does a typical day look like to you or is there no such thing uh, no, I'm very regimented, actually. Okay, good. Well, what's the regiment? So Monday to Friday, if it's my morning, it's get up, get my daughter ready, take her to the childminders, get to work for 9.30. So where do you work and where's your office? So our office is in Bermondsey, but not the nice part, Tanner Street, the shit part by the Jubilee line, which I kind of love because I actually look for neighbourhoods that have got a greasy spoon, a kebab shop and a post office. Because you can take the girl out of Bradford. Yeah, a fish and chip shop, throw that in there, I'm, I'm like happy. Well, because actually like our ethos as a company, very much if you're put off by shabby surroundings and real life and you need a pool machine and free lunches, you probably don't want to come work at Build Path. So it's actually a really good kind of like, it cuts the wheat from the chaff and it's cheap. So that's Bermondsey and I live in Balham. 
So, and if it's not my morning, then I'll either be boxing or I'll get into the office early and then I have to leave early at like 5, 5.30 to go and get my daughter. So not only do you sound like someone you don't want to get into an argument with, but technically speaking, you definitely don't want to, so... <laughs> um, I started boxing because I find it really mindful. It's an exercise that when you're... It's vigorous exercise. You get rid of any pent-up frustration, excess energy, but you're, it, you have to be in the moment for a good three minutes, otherwise you're going to get punched in the face. I mean, you have to concentrate on what you're doing. So actually, in terms of like a really vigorous exercise it's quite mindful and it's i just find it's like mind sharp as well yeah 45 speaking. minutes of that in the morning i feel like amazing mm, okay that's interesting so typical day 10 years ago were you into boxing or so what am i so if i'm 36 now i would have been 26 so i just started accenture so that was even more mad because i would get on a train or a plane on a monday morning and not come home until a thursday night or a friday morning and you would work away really hard but you would also party really hard because you were like 26 and it was like basically being in your first year at university at work Um, and I was just getting to know London and so I was doing a lot of partying and enjoying myself. Fine so you weren't getting up early to go boxing it doesn't sound like. No. (laughs) Okay what do you do to unwind do you get any time to yourself? No, there's two. I mean, I do a lot of reading and I I read a lot of factual and fiction stuff. But if I can, I'll get out of London and go horse riding because I've been riding for years since I was six. And that, again, is a really I have to do things that are mindful. Otherwise, I don't relax. They're just conduits for me thinking about work um, or I paint. That's cool. What do you paint? oils usually like I'm really boring think Dutch still life rather than like Cezanne or something crazy but yeah I find painting and horse riding two things that actually make me fully relaxed because I'm absorbed in what I'm doing but they're not kind of boxing (laughs) so you're like pooped afterwards Do you have um, like original Alex to pledges in the office and at home? Uh, There is actually it's hiding the toaster in the um, office at work that everybody laughs at and goes oh what's that and I'm like oh actually I painted that and then I've got I do have artwork that I've done hanging around the house yeah. I mean, between building a new company, having children, etc., you don't sound that busy. So if you want to do some special artwork <laughs> for our series, we'll say yes. Thank you. We can always boast about our original I mean, Ada I pledge. I don't get a lot of time, but what, what I do do is um, Saturday mornings between 8 and 12 are mine. Sunday mornings between 8 and 12 are Dave's. So Saturday morning, Dave and Harper go swimming or they do whatever. And then we do the same thing on a Sunday. So they say what I mean, regimented Thursday night, date night. And the, the thing is, when you've got a kid, you've got to have these routines. Otherwise, either you would never get time to yourself and you would certainly never speak to your husband. So we're, we actually have to be, which basically means now I, I say no to an awful lot of like um, things, really worthwhile things that people want me to do. I, I say no to. I go to very few the things. I just don't have time to give to other people. Um, it sounds, I mean, I see probably about 200 to 300 like female entrepreneurs in a, in a year, probably see two or three a week and I allow them to come to the office and I give them whatever wisdom I can impart. And, you know, that's my kind of like payback for all of the help people have given me. But I can't do much more than that between trying to start a company, sitting on the Leap for London, which is the investment board that invests around London to keep the economy growing. I sit on a board, edited Jeff and Julia's company, and then I have a husband, Big a kid. And I, she's awesome. She, they're the two, I love, I love those two. Good. Yeah, they're very cool. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of you know. You've got to learn how to say no, and I actually think that's one of the biggest skill sets as a as a founder. You have is you. We tend to be overly generous, and we actually have to learn when to say no because otherwise you end up giving too much of yourself. So, how would you describe yourself? Um, how I would describe myself as opinionated, good fun, um, caring, empathetic, authentic, genuine, a bit too passionate. I think passion can overspill into like me being a bit crazy, impatient. I've got really high standards, which I, people find difficult to be around sometimes. Um, I'm chronically insecure. So what looks like confidence is actually me just masking, usually. Is that, that sounds like something a therapist tells you, whereas usually you don't seem very insecure. And I know it's only like a first meeting with you ever, but that doesn't really come across in any kind of way. That just sounds a little bit like post-analysis, if that makes sense. No, I mean, I, I, I think I suffer quite badly from imposter syndrome quite a lot, but I mask it very well. And I have these little tricks, and, and I once said this to a room full of women, and it's it's followed me around, so it's on the internet already, which is whenever I've got a really difficult meeting ahead of me or something that requires me to project a lot of confidence, I look in the mirror and I tell myself I'm the shit, like literally three times over. 
because that has this effect of me believing it momentarily. And once you actually realise that everyone in a room is pretending, then you're usually all right. But yeah, I mean, I, and I think lots of successful people do. I think it's it's a kind of, it's actually what drives you most of the time. Being aware of your faults and your good things and analysing and being reflective, I think they're all critical to being an entrepreneur. Otherwise, you don't learn and grow. And that's the thing was the minute you become an entrepreneur or the founder of something, you take yourself out of the feedback loop. What I mean by that is you're no longer in a hierarchical structure where people tell you what you're doing well on or set your objectives and then give you feedback and criticism. Suddenly you're completely on your own and most of the time all you get is negative feedback of customers yelling at you, investors yelling at you or whatever. So actually finding your own network and and, and putting that structure around you is super important for your own development. That's why I have an executive coach because otherwise I, I found at Hassel I just stopped developing and I developed loads of bad habits that were then cascading down and you have to sort of stop those. So I just thought that's not thought about often enough when you're an entrepreneur about like, right, okay, great. Where's your feedback loop? Where's your support network? How's How are you going to grow and develop? Because if you stay static, that you literally become the ceiling on the business. Moving on to, and you'll be pleased to hear this because you've got a life to get on with and routines to get back into, yeah. our final section, sponsored by Calm.com. And it is actually all about dealing with stress, dealing with the stuff that comes um, as part of a founder journey. Now, naturally, you've already discussed some of that, but starting from the top, do you actually meditate? No, oh, no. And are you terrible the, at it? I haven't got the capacity. I, it just doesn't work for me. So your idea of being mindful is activity. A self-absorbing activity. Mm. I mean, I wholeheartedly believe in that because I'm useless at it as well. Yeah. But I try. I do try. And I do use Calm because I uh, eat my own dog food, so to speak. But yep. I, I think it is uh, It's extremely hard. And actually, the only convincing argument I ever heard, uh, which was very recently, as to why running is good, is that it's basically meditation. So if you don't listen to music and you just run, and I was like, oh, I actually get that. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. That'd be quite a good thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not about me. It's about you. So you don't meditate, but you do do mindful stuff like focusing on... On an intense activity, and I try to live in the I try to live in the present because I think we're really bad at that. We dwell too much on the past and we're thinking constantly about the future instead of just like taking in what's around us and living for the here and now. Broad question, but what top tips to avoid mistakes would you offer to our listeners? What are these like key looking back over ten years insights from Alex to pledge? Uh, one focus, like that's you know, work out what your core business is, stick to it, and say no to everything else. I see so many founders chase money. Uh, the second is stop being arrogant and thinking you know what your customers want because you don't. Actually, you need to speak to your customers and be on the front line as much as possible, especially in the early days. And I think the third thing is just to dispel this myth of this glamour of the life of an entrepreneur because if if you're good at it and you are successful, you don't have a life. And I think a lot of people get into this game because it's a cool thing to do and it seems sexy and, you know, corporates seem staid and a bit safe. They come into it and they just don't have the, the DNA makeup that means that they're going to thrive in in that environment. And, you know, if you like holidays and you like weekends, uh-uh, wrong business. If you like structure and process and you want to know what you're doing and you're a control freak, uh-uh, wrong business. And I think the more honest we're about that stuff, the more people can be like, I really admire what you're doing and it seems really fun and I'd love to do it. But actually, you know what? I'm just not made that way. And so I see a lot of people and I actually want to say to them, you're not an entrepreneur. <laughs> that seems a bit cruel. So I withhold that and be like, maybe you should think about like the things you value in life and then work out if this fits that lifestyle. What is the best piece of advice you've been given by someone else? I, My mum, actually. My mum told me when I was about 18 that everybody's pretending in life and the sooner you realise that the quicker you can just get over it and get on with it like people who look like they know everything and are totally confident they're just bullshitting as much as you are so just get on with it and actually I use that quite regularly and actually it's amazing because when you talk to I've talked to some really successful people be it politicians be it kind of actors over the last few years the kind of success with Hassel has, has seen me meandering and mingling with people I never thought I would meet you actually meet them and they've got exactly the same hang-ups that I do and yet you look at them they, they've achieved all this wealth and success and fame and adoration and actually underneath it all they're just as insecure as the next person and think they're not as good enough you know they're not good enough and I think the minute you realise that everyone is pretending I think it's just a weight off your shoulders Last question well sort of last question but last question for the podcast when you look back on your life at 90 years old you've already covered cleaning and house extensions 
Do you think you're going to work your way around every single different part of the house or are you just going to stick with build path and that is for the foreseeable future what you're doing for the rest of your life? Everybody laughs because once build path established, I'm not even saying I'll be in it forever. Like I, I think there are probably better people to me to run it once if it gets to be a big business. When? The minute I need a HR department, I kind of lose interest sort of thing. But I think once I've done this one, I'm done. I think the main driver behind this one was we didn't feel really finished with Hassel. And then we had that kind of second album syndrome, like, oh, were we just a one-hit wonder? Was it all luck? Can we do it again? And I think this is me and Jules proving to ourselves that we are good at building businesses. I think after this one, I'd like to take a bit of time, and I mean proper time out, where I go buy a horse and ride that horse. And, and paint that horse. Yeah, and raise some kids and maybe maybe do some, you know, board work or something. I'm not going to ever say never. I won't do another business again, but it takes a lot out of you. And like I said, I'm not interested in billion dollar businesses and I'm not interested in the money. This was always an exercise in proving to ourselves we could do it. I think if we've done it twice, I think we've got to that stage. It might be time to to do something different, um, whatever that looks like. But, you know, like I said, I did say after hassle, I was never going to do another business. And here I sit. So you can't really take me out of word. Last question. Yeah. Promise. What was the exit process like? Can you actually share some stories um, about what it really looks like and feels like? So I I just found it horrendous. And I think Jules would agree. I think Tom would agree. Um, It's super stressful because unless you're exiting a massive company, you know, talking hundreds of million dollars, you're typically negotiating against the people buying you. So one minute you're sitting down, like driving really hard to get to a place that you don't agree on. And the next day you went to all whole hands and sing, come by R, because now you're in the same company. It's just not a recipe for like getting the right outcome. The M&A only works when you're really upfront about why you're doing it. So when we bought Dan and Stefan, we did it because we believed that they shared the same vision and they'd add loads to the team. We didn't do it for the data or anything else like that. And absolutely, once they were in, they did. And they, they literally slipped into the leadership team. And, it, you know, obviously there were lumps and bumps, but it worked perfectly. When we sold, it wasn't transparent why they were buying us. And I think that's why most M&As fall down, because unless it's a cultural fit or you're honest and go, we need this and therefore we're not going to get precious about holding on to you. And then you can just have a real conversation about it. And I think that's why most M&As fail. Thank you very much. Cheers. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We really want to do with your healthcare what Google did with your information. Make it accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of everybody comprehensively. Everything from your mental health one day to your long-term disease management, all done by artificial intelligence, augmented by human beings. I think healthcare is something that we can make a utility for everybody, just like tap water. You turn it on, it's there. That was Dr. Ali Parsa, the founder and CEO of Babylon Health, the world's largest healthcare app, changing the way we as humans get access to healthcare. Their mission is to provide affordable healthcare to the world and to be, in Ali's own words, the Google of healthcare. We don't say this often, but get ready to have your mind blown at the scale of his ambition and, more importantly, the execution. So tune in or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.